At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. And right now on Fast, countdown to Powell, the street rallying ahead of tomorrow's big speech from the Fed chairman in Jackson Hole. But do investors need to brace for a healthy dose of tough love? Plus, shares of a firm getting hammered after hours down more than 13 percent. The fintech company missing on the top line and giving weak guidance will go inside the numbers. And later, Peloton spinning its wheels, a big downgrade in the housing sector and the options action post split for Tesla. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site. On the desk tonight, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman and Dan Nathan. We are going to start with a countdown to Jerome Powell in just under 17 hours, the Fed chairman will speak in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and investors are keyed in for any signs of how aggressive the Fed will be with its future rate hikes. Stocks rose in anticipation of Powell's comments with the major averages closing near their highs of the day. The Nasdaq led the gains up more than 1.6 percent, but the market is still on pace for a second straight week of losses. Meanwhile, crude oil and Treasury yields both pulled back the 10-year down after hitting a two-month high early in the session, breaking a four-day win streak. So what do markets need to hear from the central bank chairman tomorrow? Karen, I'd love to start with you this evening. What do you think we are anticipating hearing, given that the market gave a little bit of a run-up here, hoping for some bullish news? Well, I'm not hoping or expecting some bullish news. I mean, so much was made of that pivot. Did he pivot? Did he not? I didn't think he pivoted for a second. I think also that I don't know how how much was traded today, but I think a lot of people are, you know, sort of staying out of the way, waiting to see what Powell says. I think he's just going to stay the course. I think that uh, inflation is no, it's down, which is great, but it is so far off of where it needs to be. I don't know how they have much choice but to stay hawkish. And I think that's fine. They should. They blew it last time in 18. Now they have a chance to try to get it right. Um, and I think hawkish all the way. Dan, what do you think that Powell may say with the discussion around being data dependent? What data points are they hanging on most, especially when we're living in this very sort of convexing environment where you've got extremely high inflation, but very low joblessness? It just sort of doesn't make any sense. So which data points are going to be the most important? And is Powell going to give us a hint at which ones he's paying the most attention to? Yeah, he probably won't give too much of a well, hint other than the thing. Go oh, ahead, Dan, sorry. and then Tim, you jump in sorry. after. <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, I'm vexed. I'm terribly vexed here. No, um, so you're probably not going to get too much more than the sort of things that they've kind of pointed us to anyway, right? And so I think you bring up the most important point is unemployment. If that starts to move higher, I think that's a real game changer here. You know, if you think about some of the things that they were trying to combat with higher rates here, um, you know, asset bubbles was one of them. We're seeing housing roll over. We did see the stock market down, you know, 20 plus percent. Everyone was calling it a bear market. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they 
wanted to cool things down. Well, they've done that. They just haven't really cooled the, the I, I think the the engines of inflation that really I think worry um, a lot of economists about what the pace of global growth is going to be um, going forward. So to me, I really do. I go back to this, and and you know, you talk to anybody who is running a company right now, the lack of visibility they have and the, the where they can make immediate cuts is, is in jobs, and I would expect unemployment to start to tick up, and that is one of the things we're already seeing some real huge strain on consumers here. And so to me, if unemployment ticks up, that's the one thing that I think really cools this economy and likely pushes us very quickly into a recession. Hmm. Tim, now it's your turn. Jump in. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. I, I'm hearing head, fed voices in my head and I thought they were <laughs> calling my name. And, and I, I, you know, we know they're looking at PCE. We have PCE out tomorrow. We're going to, uh, and, and we're going to see that Employment's roughly 4.7, 4.8, but that month over month, the expectation is up another three-tenths of a percent. Inflation is not going lower anytime soon, and, 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 and we've had uh, all the king's horses and all the king's uh, men and women out there talking today. Bullard, um, Esther George. Esther George said she needs to see 4%. She had previewed the speech and wasn't going to tell us what was in it, but she said he's going to have you know, longer uh, and higher for longer and, and rates above 4%. Bullard, who uh, at times has been very, very dovish, was out they're saying uh, give us more and give us more now and get us to three and a half to four percent before year end. Fed fund futures don't have that. Um, so, you know, back to the markets, we, we, we priced in a lot. And also we talk all the time about positioning because, you know, the, the reality is one thing, but the expectations and, and where positioning are often really more important for markets. Cash levels are you know, north of 6% in the hedge fund community. Uh, S&P futures shorts uh, are, you've got the greatest short interest than you've had outside of three or four times in the last 20 years. People are expecting not great news. And even though the market had a great, great July, um, you can see semiconductors have underperformed the market by 5% even, even after a big move today. So I, I just think, you know, a lot of this is, is at least for now, um, a hawkish tone tomorrow, I think, is, is getting more priced in. Guy, when you're thinking about the data that the Federal Reserve looks at, of course, we know everything that's fairly standard. But if you're Jerome Powell, would you also want to look at things like natural gas prices and things that aren't maybe totally captured in some of these jobless claims numbers or the unemployment reports? You want to look at company announcements about layoffs or slowing hiring. I mean, would you sort of add that into the importance of your data set so that you're not always looking at this lagging data when you're trying to make these very important decisions that take some time to work through the market and the economy? You're trying to fire me up, Courtney, and I dig that. And you succeeded, <laughs> by the way. And, and you know, this. listen, I'm, I'm going to try to be as respectful as I possibly can be, but this whole data-dependent nonsense that they've trotted out for years, I mean, clearly that wasn't working all that well. I mean, I don't know what data they were dependent on, but it wasn't working. So I don't know why they would be data-dependent now, number one. To answer your question, though, absolutely, and I said it for a while now, crude gets the headlines, probably deservedly so. NatGas is a story. We had Halima Croft on the other night. And she basically agreed with that thesis. Nat gas is an extraordinarily important input for so much of industry that nobody seems to be talking about. So if I were Jerome Powell, which I'm not, I would sort of channel my inner Robert Frost and sort of do the, you know, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep in the form of getting inflation down and miles to go before I sleep because he's got a long runway. And I would drop the mic and walk off. He obviously won't do that. But that's really what's going on here. There's a lot of work yet to be done. So everything looks great right now, but a lot of work yet to be done on behalf of the Federal Reserve.
Who knew that you could recite poetry that way, Guy? Wow. Um, Karen, I'm going to turn to you and sort of talk a little bit about the housing data that we've seen. Do you think it makes Powell happy to see the data come in the way that it's been trending ahead of this big speech? Well, happy is an interesting word. I think it's a necessary <laughs> evil. I think that inflation is really the, uh, you know, the boogeyman. And um, just to um, pick up on Frost, I think he's got to go down the road less traveled and really see this hawkishness through. So it's a, it's a collateral damage that he can live with if it, solves the, if it helps to solve the inflation problem. <clears throat> so interesting. And Guy, I've got to tell you, Robert Frost had this lovely quote about the college that I went to, Miami University, my alma mater, the most beautiful campus there ever was. If you ever get a chance to go, you should. It's, uh, it's quite lovely. But uh, Dan Nathan, I want to turn to you and ask you about housing. Necessary evil, maybe not happy, but something that you need to see as policy goes forward. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to kind of risk asset bubbles. And so, uh, you know, we saw, you know, record low rates for a long time. We saw this really odd migration that happened during the pandemic. We saw a lot of people who had a lot of cash and had the ability to, to do things they might not otherwise have done with hybrid working. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you look at any of the housing data that we've seen over the last, let's call it, you know, three years or so, what we've done over the last few months is taken out a bunch of that excess. So to me, I think there's really negative implications, though, with that, um, you know, with that whole housing setup. If I go back to if unemployment were to tick up, I just don't understand how we can be in the sort of situation and taking some of the signals from a lot of the CEOs that we've heard, even though the stock market has rallied over the last couple of months through Q2 earnings season, there is not a heck of a lot of clarity right now. And again, if unemployment starts to tick up, all of that consumer data that people are very nervous about right now, we're seeing lots of sorts of delinquencies, whether it be phone bills, whether it be repossessions, I mean, the list goes on and on. That's gonna accelerate. And I just really think that when you think about how much our uh, GDP is reliant on our consumer right now, I just doesn't, it's not a great setup for me. So stocks right here after that huge run into this meeting tomorrow, I just don't see what good news would be. He can't pivot right here, and that's not good for the stock market, especially with yields above 3%, with crude oil above 90 bucks, with the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index at 20-year <laughs> highs. I just don't see it. Yeah, there's a lot of nuances, certainly, to your points there about the consumer and what's going on below the surface with delinquencies, even if they are still buying certain things. Well, our next guest does expect a relief rally following Powell's J Jackson Hole speech tomorrow. Mike Schumacher is head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. <laughs> Mike, thank you very much for joining us here today. So I guess maybe you weren't surprised about today's rally if you expect that to continue tomorrow. Why? What are you expecting from the chairman? Yeah, it's interesting. I thought the comments about Robert Frost were pretty interesting, but to me, I look at it and say what Powell should do is get in touch with his inner Arnold Schwarzenegger and say, look, my <laughs> job is to terminate inflation. I'm going to do it. But the question is, does he have that in him? We think not. So markets packed up a ton. If you look at bonds, look at the two-year Treasury, 10-year Treasury yield up 40, 50 basis points this month, that kind of thing. Markets pricing the Fed cycled in at 375 to 380. The market's done a lot of work already, the bond market that is. Can Jay Powell really hang in there? It just doesn't seem like he wants to be that guy. Yes, he wants to squelch inflation, but does he really want to talk the tough talk? We think not. Where do you expect yields to go on the 10-year then? Yeah, briefly down. So down something like 10, 15 basis points, but very short-lived. So you've got 
Jackson Hole tomorrow, pretty light week next week except for Friday. Very thin liquidity conditions. But in September, a lot of big events. U.S. CPI is pivotal on the 13th, FOMC the 21st. We think the 10 years up to 320-ish, 325, let's say, by the end of SEP, and ends the year somewhere in the mid-3s. 340, 350, 360, pick a number, but something like that. So we're still pretty bearish. So, Michael, if the market is ultimately the, the witness tree, I may, for what the Fed is really thinking, you, you have a case here, first of all, at 370 on the 10-year, uh, I don't think equity markets are priced for higher rates. If anything, uh, the pivot we saw wasn't necessarily an expectation of a Fed pivot, but at least that there was going to be uh, a less aggressive tone. So even just the change in hawkishness, that much less. What, what do you think about reconciling the two? And, and can, can you make a call here for what, how equity should be responding to your higher rates? outlook well to me perhaps the most interesting thing about the the market shift in fed pricing hasn't been so much where do we think the cycle ends 375 4 whatever it might be it's will the fed move quickly from tightening to easing and a lot of that's been taken out so a month or so ago you had this dramatic shift from yes we'll tighten until December or maybe February something like that and then boom a couple months later easing that's not really priced in. It's not totally knocked out, but it's been pushed out a bit. And we think there's a lot more sanity being injected into the market. So the idea of a longer Fed pause, is that good or bad for stocks? Maybe that's a good thing. A higher rate, probably a negative. I'm not quite sure how to weigh those two things. But to me, again, it's that, that much more delayed shift from tightening to easing. That's the big takeaway. Michael, I bring this up. I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, the volatility in the bond market is probably historic, at least in, here in the United States, number one. But, you know, a 3.5% tenure, it's not suggestive of an economy that's getting better. It's probably anything but, and it, it, it's inflation out of control. Conversely, a tenure that goes back down to 2.5% is suggestive of an economy that's getting weaker. So there's a situation, the environment here, where regardless of which way yields go, it's bearish. Does that make sense? Not sure I'd read it quite that way. It seems to me that the big takeaway for the 10-year and the two-year for that matter is going to be, to a large extent, two things. One is monetary policy, especially the Fed, of course. But secondly, what about the global factors with respect to energy, with respect to the European economy? How bad does the natural gas situation get this winter, which we're going to find out in a few months? These things will all impact the 10-year quite a bit. But for us, the big driver is going to be tighter policy by the Fed. That's going to push up yields, we think. And therefore, it's really kind of an inflation story, I think, dominating. Mike Schumacher of Wells Fargo, thank you very much for joining us here this evening. Let's go thank ahead you. and trade a little bit out of this one. Dan, what do you make of uh, Mike Schumacher's opinion here on what we may see about the relief rally or the direction of the 10-year? Dealer's choice, you pick. Yeah, I just, again, with stocks right here, um, you know, I was not particularly bearish in June. I think viewers know that, um, but I am pretty bearish on the economy right here. So I just don't know how the stock market can continue to rally um, that much more with what I think is going to happen with the economy, not just here, but also overseas here. And so to me, I just don't think you chase. If we get a rally tomorrow on a Friday afternoon at the end of summer based on something the Fed um, might say or, or be misinterpreted, so to me, I just don't think you chase this here, and I do think that we are going to have um, a retest of 4,000 in the S&P 500, and I think there's an unfilled gap down there at 3,800, and I suspect that gets filled at some point in September.
Okay, we'll consider ourselves warned then. We have a news alert for you on the meantime on Bed Bath & Beyond. The retailer saying it will share its comeback strategy on Wednesday of next week. The company is reportedly in talks with the lender for a nearly $400 million loan to shore up finances and reassure suppliers. Shares here moving up about 4% in the after hours on this news. Karen, is there anything that would make you be interested in Bed Bath & Beyond? Any kind of strategy that could move this needle forward? Knowing that in some areas of the market, home goods are still selling if you do it right. Look what we just heard from Williams-Sonoma. I mean, I guess if they were acquired, that that would probably do it. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think, I mean, good for them for getting this financing. It, there was some talk about uh, them selling a um, baby uh, division. But I think that... Uh, if it's 6th Street, I would bet also there's going to be some warrants or some kind of equity-type structure there as well. This buys them time, which they desperately need. But I do feel like it's really an uphill battle when you're battling Amazon and Target and Walmart. And uh, so, no, it's not for me. Yeah, there's Brian a lot, Cohen certainly. Notwithstanding. Yeah, there's a lot there that's that's been changed. I'm not sure how much they're going to undo or how much they're going to redo. I guess we'll know more next week. Well, coming up, we are all over the after hours action in a firm. Shares on the move after reporting down more than 13%. The conference call is underway. We're going to bring you all those details next, plus evaluation conversation. We're digging into the tech space and honing in on the big players' valuations, the names holding up and those that are breaking down. The details when Fast Money returns. We're back in just two minutes. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on a firm. Shares sinking after the fintech company issued weak revenue guidance for the current quarter and full year. The company posting a slight earnings miss, but revenue beat for the quarter. Steve Kovac has all the details. Steve, this is such an interesting name. What's going on here? Yeah, Court. So mixed results tonight from a firm, but it's the weaker than expected guidance that's uh, for its fiscal 2023 that's sending shares tanking after hours is about 13% down now. But first, let's get on to uh, the top and bottom lines. Revenue is a beat, 360 Four million million versus $355 million expected. Loss per share worse than expected at $0.65. Cents. The street was looking for $0.63. Cents. 
Uh, and meanwhile, the company is guiding up to $365 million in revenue for the first quarter of their fiscal 23. That's falling short of expectations of $386 million. And full-year guidance is also like, Courtney, $1.62 billion versus just under $2 billion expected. Meanwhile, gross merchandise value, that's the total cost of stuff bought through a firm, growing 77% to $4.4 billion for the quarter. Meanwhile, some commentary from CEO Max Levitin in the release on the state of the consumer saying growth in e-commerce is falling back to pre-COVID levels. By the way, Levchin will join us on Tech Check tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Court, back to you. Very interesting. Steve, thank you so much. Yeah. Tim, let's trade this one. You know, gross GMV, the gross merchandise value, up 77%, which I find interesting. And I'm, I can't decide if I think that's a good thing or a bad thing with the consumer, because if they're having to use a firm and use it on payment plans, does that suggest they're more stressed, Guy? Well, there's, there's so many layers to this negative story, I think, that and, and the consumer and spending and retail and e-commerce, I think, are and, and those numbers we're getting in the last quarter are, are very stale, and I don't think they tell the story. The guide is what tells the story. But the reason you wanted to be short the stock for the last uh, 80%, uh, or at least the first half of that 80%, was it was just a high multiple tech company that didn't make money. We're just starting to get into the real part of the story that should have investors most nervous, and that's the credit side. Um, in this release, They've actually talked about a reserve release for next year. This is a much, you know, to me, this is we're talking about labor markets that that not only we expect, but the Fed probably wants to get worse. We haven't even heard a whiff of credit here. And, and again, you're talking about a consumer that 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 splurged, that binged coming out of COVID, that had stimulus checks, that had a lot of money handed to them, and bought on buy now pay layer. So um, to me, this is actually a worsening credit story. And I think, you know, I don't know, you know, if you're somebody that shorts companies, uh, the, the the first part. Part of this move is really more just what you're doing around market dynamics and what you're doing about the worsening environment. Uh, the credit story is yet to unfold, and that's a reason to really stay away from this stock. Yeah, Guy, that was sort of my question here as I was looking through. I mean, obviously, we pay attention to things like earnings and revenue, but the product itself is buy now, pay later. Retailers love it because it allows shoppers potentially to spend a little bit more or buy a little bit bigger purchase than they might not, than they might have been able to, to buy otherwise. But what does that suggest to us? about the strain that consumers might be in if they're having to use a firm to make purchases, Guy. What is that what does that sound like? I hearken back to 0809, you know, subprimey stuff. I mean this is mm. sort of 2.0, but another conversation for another time. In terms of the stock, I mean let us not forget, and Tim alluded to it, this was a hundred and seventy-six dollar stock around Thanksgiving of last year, which was madness. The stock is also basically yes. tripled since the May low, which is also madness when you think about it. Now, there's really nothing to like here, I don't think. I mean, I do think the path of least resistance is lower. 27 is a good stopping ground because it's a midway through this recent low and the recent high we saw a couple weeks ago. But there's nothing really to like. Again, just my opinion. There's not all that much to like about this story. And, oh, by the way, for you bingo players, um, the worst, I think, is yet to come in terms of credit. So Tim is spot on. Yeah, that is fascinating. It's a good reminder of where the stock price had been not that long ago. It is quite far down from that now sitting at about 27. Karen? Yeah, just one thing I want to add. Just the company did, I think, one of the most masterful debt offerings ever in November of 21. They issued $1.7 billion of a convert, struck at like 230 bucks a share, zero coupon. 
So wow. kudos to them for now wow. having that zero five-year paper, ten times one ten. The stock's one tenth in the money. Wow. So that was outstanding. Oh, that's some that's some deep affirmed trivia. I like that. Good good point there, Karen. Well, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The earnings keep rolling in. Some big retail stocks reporting results. So is it time for a try-on? Or should you leave these at the register? But first, vulnerable valuations? The traders are plugging into the tech space and checking in on some big players. So which names are holding up? The details next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's no surprise the tech valuations have taken a hit in recent months, but not all stocks have been painted with the same brush, which is, of course, often the case. So which names have held up and which could be a little more vulnerable here? Bob Pisani has the numbers. Bob? Hi, Courtney. Despite a modest bounce back in technology prices this year, the big story has been the valuation reset forward earnings multiples on even the largest, most profitable tech names are for the most part substantially lower than they were in January, in some cases much lower, but there's a couple exceptions. Tech valuations increased substantially during COVID, in some cases reaching historic highs, so some reset was to be expected. Microsoft, for example, has seen its multiple increase for many years, but not this year. It was as high as 36 times forward earnings in January, was at 33 in April, now at 27. Other software names have also seen lower valuations. ServiceNow, for example, often traded for over 100 times forward earnings in the last six years, including early January of this year, but it was down to 74 in April, and it's at 63 today. Alphabet has also seen a valuation reset, trading at 24 times forward earnings in April, and now it's at 22. But Alphabet had a huge run-up in its valuation during the pandemic at one time, trading for a 36 multiple. That was an historic high. It's much lower now. Some big names have seen a valuation reset that is even more notable. Meta Platforms, for example, historically traded for an average of about 25 times forward earnings for many years before collapsing this year. Now, one exception to the valuation reset has been Apple, which was still trading at a fairly pricey 28 times forward estimates in April. And though it dropped back to 22 in June, it's since bounced back. It's 28 again. The same with NVIDIA, which had a huge valuation run-up in the last few years. It was trading at a pricey 48 times forward earnings in April. It dropped to 27 in June, and it's back at 50 times today. Back to you, Courtney. Thank you very much, Bob. Well, Dan, a couple comments after hours from some other tech names catching your eye. Dell and Workday, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, there's two that are kind of competing here. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, Dell, primarily a hardware company, they're talking about seeing, you know, uh, just some cautious 
buying behavior, which kind of reminds us a little bit of what we heard last night from Salesforce. We talked about it a little bit, a little measured buying activity. I mean, you want to pay attention to companies like this. Dell is a company that does $100 billion in sales. Um, they are a great barometer on enterprise demand. Same thing for Salesforce. Last night, $30 billion in sales. So those sorts of cautionary comments are important. The flip side of that is a company like Workday, it was actually had some positive things to say, but it's really important. You know, we spent some time talking about Snowflake. Snowflake is a company that does two, two and a half billion dollars in sales. That net dollar retention number, that is one of the key metrics that investors and SaaS companies look at, was off the charts, 171%. That thing trades at like 30 times sales, okay, 30 times sales. Bob was just talking about 27 times for Apple and Microsoft as being very expensive. So again, I think until we see a materially reset in a lot of these valuations, even like in Adobe, they're gonna report in a couple weeks. These are really important to keep an eye on, not just the valuations and where they might trough, but also the direction in which the guidance is telling you where enterprise spending is going, because that is gonna be the determinant of these valuations, I think, for the balance of the year. Tim, are there any of these names where you've seen valuations fall you think now might be the right time to move in if you believe things are going to start on the upswing the other direction here in the relative near term? Well, I don't think interest rates are going lower anytime soon, right. and therefore uh, I don't think tech, tech multiples should be coming down um, or, or be more attractive, I should say. If anything, it makes them look that much more offsides. I, I think investors need to be very careful about tech companies that, telling you, uh, that are telling you that, that we are a software or a recurring revenue story and we're not necessarily reliant on hardware. And there's a few companies like that. I mean, even Peloton, I, you know, that's, those are the headlines I'm seeing in their release today. Um, Apple's a story that we have re-rated the company. That, that P is double where it was five years ago, and it's because of services. Is it deserving of that? Well, I think Apple deserves uh, as, as, uh, as bulletproof of a, of a multiple out there, at least in mega cap tech, because of their balance sheet and because of what they can do. But uh, I, I think tech multiples are going to be under more pressure. And I think just in terms of allocation, I still believe that industrials and energy look pretty attractive here. Karen, you were sort of nodding your head as Tim was talking, interest rates going higher, thus maybe tech doesn't make sense to jump into right now. Is that sort of what you were nodding your head in agreement for? Yes, exactly. I, I, with the multiple, you know, with interest rates being flat or higher, it's hard to see how there's a big improvement in multiples there. I'm short the IGV. I have been short that for a long time. It's sort of the high flyer software names. Um, you know, Intuit service now, Adobe, mm -hmm. uh, I think Salesforce is the second biggest, uh, Microsoft might be the first. Um, but I just think that uh, it's a good ballast against some of the, you know, I'm, uh, Google's my biggest position. I think of that as value tech. And I want to stay short this for as long as I think the Fed is uh, in, in hawkish mode. Guy, are you in agreement? In terms of Google, absolutely. I mean, the move from 152 down to the low 100, stock that's trading slightly higher than a market. Actually, it probably is a market multiple, given the rally we've seen in the S&P 19 times. So if you're looking for a place that makes sense, that I think still has a pretty wide and deep moat, it's Google. Some of those other names, you know, you, it's hard to wrap your head around. Look, Snowflake's a great company trading. Dan said 30 times current uh, revenue, probably 22 times next year. I mean, that... That's still pretty expensive by any valuation. So Google, if you're looking for a place where you can get a pretty uh, significant value in a pretty, I don't know, difficult environment, to me it's Google. 
All right. Well, coming up, it's retail time. Gap and Ulta both on the move after reporting results. We've got details on both of those names. That's coming up next. Plus, a big backpedal for Peloton. Shares sinking more than 18% today after yesterday's major surge. We'll tell you what had the name hitting the brakes when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Gap. Shares are surging in the after hours here up about 5% after the company posted a profit for the latest quarter. And Banana Republic saw an increase in comparable sales of 8%. While Old Navy sales fell 15%. But the company did withdraw guidance for the year. Interim CEO Bob Martin citing uncertain market conditions. Oh, guy, what do we make of Gap, Inc.? This one, I have to admit, I'm a little surprised that the shares are higher and that there was some not so horrible news in this release there's a lot this company's got to work through yeah let's not confuse the stock being higher with again not a great company the two are sometimes mutually exclusive um with that said what's working for gap the stock is the fact that the recent low basically mirrors the low we saw in march of 2020 so you have a Mm. bit of a double bottom here that people are trading off of definitely a decent short interest to trade against but let's not make a mistake i mean this is a I don't want to use the word failing company, but this is a struggling company still with an inventory problem that posted a quarter better than people were looking for. But I tell you what, you could probably in this environment, you could trade this from the long side and it could probably rally 35 percent from here and still be a failing company. So that's how I would trade it. I'd be long the stock, but understanding that the company has not solved its problems at all. So this is more of a trade, not an investment with the way that you're looking at this. Karen, as I look at this, I'm a little concerned about the inventory. We knew that their inventory was an issue last quarter, sort of a little bit earlier than it hit everyone else, it seems. They're up 37% year over year. About 20% of it is is sort of more than they would want because some of this is pack and hold inventory and a lot of it's basics. It doesn't seem like a great place to be right now with a consumer that's being very discerning with their discretionary dollars. No, I mean, I'm surprised like you that it's up. I think, you know, if you can't say something nice about guidance, don't say any guidance at all, which seems Mm. to be working for them. So that's good. But I think without the CEO, uh, we don't know who it's going to be. They don't know who it's going to be. You got to think that CEO is going to come in and just lower the bar for themselves dramatically. So I don't I mean, the guy's area of this being a trade, that may absolutely be the case. But as a long term investment, a lot of other places to look that are cheap. Tim, I think you agree. I see you nodding your head. Well, I, I agree. I, I also just think that Old Navy, which is really the all-star brand within this portfolio, is struggling the most and has the most demographic exposure here. Um, you know, the good news is that digital sales, online sales are 34% of the business, saving them from some of the brick and mortar failures. But, you know, those are down 6%. Like, when I look in the rearview mirror over the last 12 months, I don't see a consumer that's fallen apart yet. Um, and that's why some of this is actually kind of disappointing. They've gone to great lengths in this release to also say uh, they're not going to buy back any shares this year. They're going to be very prudent uh, on overhead expenses and commitments to new digital technology in ways that, that really, frankly, in some cases are part of the reasons that the company has been able to get themselves and transform themselves. So um, it's not an exciting time at this company. It's kind of tuck and roll. Uh, and that's what this feels like. 
I want to move on to another one, another earnings alert for you all. Shares of Ulta popping in the after hours. The beauty retailer seeing double-digit comparable sales growth and upping its full year 2022 outlook. Karen, every time I look at Ulta's results, I almost shake my head in disbelief. They just keep doing it quarter after quarter. These comparable sales results are pretty amazing yes. that they're able to continue. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of a trade down. If we're giving up other things in our life, it's not beauty. It's not cosmetics, at least not at Ulta, not at Cody this morning. What do you do with Alta? Is it too expensive here because of the strong track record it's had, or is it a risk not to be involved? Well, I actually caught one of your hits today where someone said, is it lipstick on a pig? And you said if they had to sell lipstick to a pig, they'd do a bang-up job. You're absolutely right. They're hitting on all cylinders. I think, you know, they guided the low end of their guidance is above the high end of where the street was. So you got to be pretty confident to put out those numbers. I was surprised the margin actually wasn't even a little bit better given how big the revenue beat was. But I think they had some shrinkage, which we haven't heard talked about in a while. And the boys may have something to say about that. I don't know. But that may have been <laughs> what was what was a little bit of pressure on the margin. I think it was outstanding. I own it. I'm long. I didn't buy more because I thought, wow, it's, it's, you know, it ain't cheap. It's more expensive than the market. It should be. They're doing a fantastic job. Kudos to them. I mean, and, and hopefully as a target shareholder, we're going to see some Ulta benefit as well. Yeah, absolutely. With that uh, tie-up partnership with those Ulta locations in some Target stores, very good point. If they sold lipstick to a pig, I was just thinking it could be like Miss Piggy Pink. I mean, that would be cute. Maybe Farmer would buy it. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for playing. Coming up, a Peloton plunge. Shares dropping on the back of results, leaving yesterday's big surge in the dust. More on the cycle stocks, swings next. Plus Tesla kicking off trading on a split adjusted basis. So what does the change mean for options markets? We'll dig into the action when Fast Money returns back into. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a buzzkill on Peloton. The stock tumbling after a dismal earnings report before the bell. Losses ballooning to more than $1.2 billion in the latest quarter. An overall gross margin came at negative 4%. Peloton suffering a serious hangover after yesterday's gains, more than racing everything it added after its deal to sell some of its products on Amazon. Guy, what do you got to say about this one? I don't think, look, selling products on Amazon, fantastic. I don't think it's a selling products problem. It's, it's a, the valuation of the company that's been a problem, and it's a commoditized. We've talked about this for a while. I mean, the only question now is, does the stock get back down to 8 bucks, which is where it was recently? I think the only way to foray into this is to try to figure out when you see a capitulatory bottom, and maybe we'll see it in the form of seven or eight times normal volume tomorrow or Monday but to try to buy this for an investment to an earlier question you had, I just don't, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a trading vehicle now, that's it. Tim? Well, at times it made sense to look at it where it was pre-COVID before all the pull forward and before Guy got very chiseled during COVID, by the way. I mean, Guy, an avid Pelotoner, if I may. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think you've I think that the dynamic here is some of these trends, though, I think we've also run into maybe more of a ceiling on the addressable market. I would repeat what I also said earlier in the show, which is when they tell me that this is moving to a software multiple, not a hardware multiple. I say, you know, I say GoPro. You know, I don't believe it. And I've seen this movie before. And I just think that this is, again, not a name you're chasing on good news. 
rough comparison, but that chart is really rough when you take a look at that, too. Well, from Buzzkill to Splitsville, Tesla dropping about 1.5% in its first day of trading following its three-for-one stock split. Tesla was the single most active stock in the options market today. So is now the perfect time for a refresher on what's happening to stocks options in a split? Feels like it is. Mike Coe joins us now to do it for us. Break it down for us. Sure. Whenever we have a stock split, I think it's important for people who hold or are interested in trading the options on that stock, what actually happens. So as you just mentioned, Tesla was the most active single stock option today. Of course, it is often at the top of the list. When you have a stock split, what happens is you're going to multiply the number of shares represented by those options. So in this case, if you had one call contract, now you're going to own three. You multiply by that same number. You also have to adjust the strike price, though. So that will actually get divided. So if you previously owned one 900 strike call, you're going to divide that by three. Now you have three 300 strike calls. And of course, the premium is also going to get divided by a like amount. So today, we traded about 1.87 million contracts. It was actually the second busiest option overall. Only SPY, the ETF, traded more options than Tesla did in contract terms today. However, the flow overall did have a slightly bearish sentiment. And one of the examples of the bearish trades that we saw was an institutional buyer of nearly 3,000 of the October 220 puts. The buyer paid $4.80 a contract. And the buyer of those puts is either betting on a move down to or through that strike or hedging against it if they happen to be long the stock. Interesting stuff. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Good education on what it means in the options market when you see a stock do a three-for-one split. So let's trade Tesla. Dan, you were trading Tesla around this split. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, the stock in general. I think it was your final trade. What say you now? Yeah, I mean, my, my quick take was I wouldn't buy it for this event. I think that there has been some support of the stock because people were looking forward to it. And last night I mentioned the fact that back in August of 2020, the company announced a five for one split. The stock just took off. I mean, and then as soon as it split, the stock proceeded to sell off. 30% the following month in September. Now the Nasdaq at one point was off an awful lot also, but but Tesla's performance outperformed to the downside, okay? So if you were to get a big broad market move and you had a lot of people piling in for something that is not fundamental, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'll just say how I'm trading it. I am short, I'm also long puts. I would stop my short at about 315. That's the top end of the range that the stock has been in over the last month. And I'm looking to play sometime into the end of next month or so for a move back towards 250. So the way I'm playing it is risking one to possibly make three to the downside. Okay, I like the trade. Good details there, too. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. It's tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I will see you then. But coming up here, housing. Hold up. A big bearish call on home builders as demand eases up. But one name could be worth a look for your portfolio. The details ahead don't go anywhere. Fast Money is back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's check out the home builders. On our call of the day, Bank of America downgrading Toll Brothers, KB Home, and Lennar today, citing a sharp deceleration in housing demand post-COVID. The shocks, though, seem to shrug off the analyst concerns. Stocks are higher. You can see Toll Brothers higher 
by 4%, KB Home higher by 2.6, Lennar higher by more than one. The bank, though, did upgrade DreamFinders homes as the company has high exposure to the build-to-rent segment in Florida. That stock rallied more than 7.5% today. Let's trade these names. We love to talk about the home builders. Tim, anything in the report today from Bank of America has you interested in dipping your toes in? Well, no, I, I think we're getting more downgrades. I think we, we see affordability. We also had the, the second largest uh, spike in mortgage rates, I think, in 10 years, uh, up to 555 on a 30-year mortgage. You know, these are trends that make housing even more unaffordable. Um, we've heard the, the builders guide lower. We just got some news in the after hours that Blackstone's halting purchases through uh, one of their core uh, you know, entities that's been buying single-family homes aggressively for a long time in 38 cities. You know, that to me, I, I, Blackstone's the smart money in a lot of places. They certainly are here, and they've been the, the largest buyer in the market. So um, I think housing is under pressure. I think Restoration Hardware, Williams-Sonoma, Home Depot are names you want to be picking up uh, on weakness here. And I think you could start to nibble even some Home Depot around 280. Uh, the, the RH and the Williams-Sonoma moves have been massive. We talked about this yesterday. Uh, I think you give it a little more time. Karen, what do you think about the home builders? Do you have ways here that you want to play them or any other suggestions like a Home Depot, a Masco, something like that that sort of at least trades around those trends? Right. I am long Home Depot. I am long Lowe's. And uh, both of those have decent earnings. But Tim's point about, I mean, Blackstone is a gigantic buyer. And that just sends an enormous message that uh, we think we think housing is overpriced. Not, that's not such news, but... To have the biggest player in the market step back, that's that's important. So I think I don't know if the I, I don't know if the home builders had that sense or they or if uh, all they buy is new or used or, or um, uh, existing homes. I don't know, but that's big news. It's it's not great. I'm a little uh, I'm a little nervous as a shareholder of uh, Lowe's and Home Depot. Okay, I think that's understandable. Those stocks of, and actually the fundamentals of the companies have just held up for, for so long. Sometimes it just feels like, can this continue? Well, thank you all for playing this one. We're going to save some time because coming up next, we've got your final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. Sports betting is headed to broadcast. FanDuel announcing the launch of a dedicated TV network, the first sports gambling company to do so. The bet by FanDuel, which is owned by Flutter Entertainment, includes a cable television network and streaming platform, FanDuel Plus, which will be free for existing app users. Dan, what do you think of this announcement? Yeah, well, I think it makes sense, especially after the billions of dollars that all these companies have spent just trying to market against each other. But it's going to be expensive. And if you think about what Penn did, um, I think with Barstool, that probably makes a bit more sense. This is going to be a big, big spend, but it's going to force DraftKings hand. They're going to have to do something similar as it relates to original content. Well, it is now time for the final trades. Let's go around the horn. And Tim, I'm going to start with you tonight. Yeah, I just want to get back to energy, you know, not gas prices, fresh highs. If you look at the U.S. shale producers who are debt ridden, they're going to actually be uh, debt free by 24. The entire energy sector, $1.4 trillion in free cash flow. Karen. EOG is a great way to play it. EOG. Karen. Yeah, hopefully Target is a beneficiary of Ulta's great news, uh, TGT. Dan. Uh, yeah, that conversation on the home builders. I'd be a seller of the XHB. That's the ETF that tracks it. I think we make new lows in the next six months. Covering all sorts of bases tonight. Guy. The folks in Athens, Ohio, take umbrage with what you said earlier. Lockheed Martin, sister, LMT. 
Love and honor for Oxford, Ohio forever. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.